One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm David Payne, careers editor at Nature, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature careers podcast. In this seven-part series, Science Diversified, we're exploring how the scientific enterprise truly benefits when you have a team of researchers from a broad range of backgrounds, disciplines and skill sets. Each episode ends with a 10-minute sponsored slot from the International Science Council about its work on diversity. In this sixth episode, we focus on race and ethnicity in science. We meet two black researchers to discuss the challenges, the value of mentoring, as well as the pros and cons of diversity initiatives. I'm proud of my black skin. I'm proud of the struggles that we face and the things that I face now. Um, but I also think of it sometimes as a burden because sometimes in certain defined spaces in academe, you're the only one. Uh, and that has its own set of challenges because there's so many eyes. Um, you're like the rubric or the curriculum um, that everyone will go by um, in order to either acquire someone else or not. My name's Antonor Hinton. Most people call me AJ. And I am an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University in the Department of Molecular Physiology and Biophysics. And I study um, mitochondrial dynamics regulation during aging. Uh, and if I find the fountain of youth, I'll try to bottle it and put it in a pill so that everyone can have, you know, uh, a chance to live forever. I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, and I was always a curious child. I first learned about science through my grandparents. My grandparents would take me to garden, um, and my grandfather was an auto mechanic. And so he would always teach me how things went together in a car. Um, so I got a lot of physics exposure, engineering exposure. Uh, at the time, I didn't know that's what it was called. And then I also got a lot of plant biology or botany exposure. So my name is Professor Carla Faria. I work at University College London. I'm a full professor. My area of expertise is uh, intense field laser matter interaction. So I work with matter in intense fields, very, very, very short time scales. I was born in the Amazon Delta in Berlin. I'm also ethnically of mixed heritage, so I'm what people in Brazil call a parda. So these are black people of Afro-European ancestry. So we have Afro-European heritage, so to say Portuguese, Africans and everything mixed up. And my mother's family, they're more indigenous. And I would say where I come from, I am quite posh and I'm quite pale, but this is the north of Brazil. So yes, I'm black, but 
There are racial hierarchies based on colorism that they are horrible and we should not ignore. And I have to start by acknowledging my privilege and say that I'm on the pale and privileged side. And I descend from 10 ethnic groups, which is insane. Some Africans, some Europeans, some indigenous. The 1000 Black Scientists list is an opportunity to showcase the history that has occurred from black scientists over the years um, in science in general. So there could have been more names, but we chose 1000 based upon a set of criteria and also um, a review panel that helped us to do this. We meaning me plus the community of scholars to do this 1000 list. And it is a tribute for all the years of hard work where black scientists were not recognized for their efforts in science and then also to demonstrate what the newer generation, the younger assistant professors and some uh, just associate professors are now doing to change the face of science, whether it's in cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, you name it, engineering, you know, and even mathematics. And another thing is that a lot of times, a lot of the older generation that paved the way to be able to allow for me to have a PhD were not recognized. An example of that would be Sandra Murray. She actually received her PhD in Iowa, I believe, in the 70s, um, when no person had, of color had ever received their PhD. And if it wasn't for her putting up with certain um, institutional uh, challenges that had occurred throughout that time period, I wouldn't be able to have a postdoc at um, Iowa, nor be able to be mentored by an African-American male that is Dr. Edel Abel that actually runs the Department of Internal Medicine. So mentoring is applying your experiences to individuals. It's kind of like an echo. So if someone told me something that was useful and I relay it to someone else, the individual that now is the mentee or the trainee um, will be able to remember what I've said. But really what they are actually remembering is the echo that came from my own individual that trained me. And so that concept is important. And I think that's what we have to impart in trainees. Echoes that are of positive, emotional, moving towards a goal, very oriented uh, task. Mentorship is a set of principles that align with who you are as an individual and you're learning how to work with another individual to create a relationship that prospers that person towards their goals um, and it meets their aspirations. And sometimes it can be a cumbersome process. Not everything's easy if you want to obtain it. it should be something that's towards a process or a goal every time. In fact, more than mentoring, I would say we need a restructuring in how the current system works. But because this is not going to happen overnight, individuals who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, they need to be able to navigate the present system. So be able to do this more easily with mentoring because the system is already rigged in favor of, let's say, a white middle-class British person, or if you want to be even more precise, white middle-class British male person. So these people, they have learned things by osmosis, if you want, from their family, from their peers. They have connections. They know what to say at the right time. They have access to education. 
Now pick up, for instance, a person who is black and is coming from a poor background or a working class background. This person doesn't know these things because they didn't learn this at home. So they need to have some help to be able to navigate this. Ideally, everybody should have access to good education, should have the same opportunities. But while this is not the case, people need a help to be able to compete in a level playing field or at least in something that is not that unequal as it is right now. My case, I mean, I'm a privileged person uh, because I learned a lot of these things first by osmosis because I come from a rich and privileged background. So if you wish, I had a lot of informal mentors. I have great allies. I have people who have helped me navigate through things. I have support from my family. I have support from my friends. I have a great partner. And the only reason why I had to blaze my own trail is because I decided to leave, to leave home. Once I left, say, the north of Brazil, I had to deal with racism as well, many times with sexism. But in a way, I always had very helpful allies and people who really helped me uh, along the way. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize with mentorship. It has to be intentional and it has to be discovery um, based. And what I mean by that is that you're sitting down using an individual development plan, a mentoring compact. Um, these are tools that can be used to develop a mentor. So individual development plan allows you to, to mark down your strengths, your weaknesses, um, your future goals, and then what honors and awards you're going to do. Um, and then areas that um, are outside of the sciences that you need help, you know, improving. And the mentoring compact, just for everyone to know, is a set of criteria that a mentor guides themselves by and that will guide you by while you're in their presence as a mentor. And it's a contractual agreement that, you know, that you'll agree to do these things that, you know, they're asking you to do. Oh my gosh, uh, I feel like I do so much mentoring. The individuals that I've actually mentored myself are around 49 or 48. I can't remember. It's, it's getting close to 50. Um, my goal is to get them to where they become better than me um, at that stage that they're at. The mentoring style that I have is consistency, a lot of hard work, and helping them reach their goals a lot sooner than what they think that they can achieve, and believing in them when they lose hope in themselves because times can be challenging when you're coming up against so many oppositions, whether it's your grades, whether it's family, um, personal relationships, you know, or just having your own, you know, mental health challenges when you're going through school because you've never balanced this load before. The status quo is never going to change without pressure from below. And also you have to find ways of getting in the system to be able to try to influence things from the inside. And committees, if effective, would be a way to do this. Some committees can be effective, some cannot be. There are other ways, for instance, there are pressure groups, there are uh, people who demonstrate, there are many, many other ways. So you cannot dismiss the committees, but you need to ensure that they are effective. It's going to depend on whether you are given some power because the committee is within an institution, a university, and sometimes there's a framework 
within you have to operate and this is limited. At the moment, I'm not involved in any diversity committee because I need to focus on my research and I need to get my priorities right. However, I am involved in several initiatives. For instance, I am a mentor in a B Mentor Scheme at UCL, which is a scheme focused on black and minority ethnic groups. So I'm involved, but not in a committee in which I have to meet regularly and that is going to take a lot of my time. I have been in the past, but I feel I need to prioritize things. Basically, I keep myself busy, but not too busy. I always remember the power of saying no. Um, and how I do that is I focus on my mentoring um, evaluations with Dale. So we meet one time a month to talk about diversity, uh, to make sure I'm on target to do the things I need to do with my diversity role. And then we stay focused on the research on a day-to-day -day basis with Hanada Pereira in the lab. She helps me to do a lot of those activities. And then for the bigger task of how to say no, Dale works with me very closely about the opportunities that I may have for a month. Sometimes I have maybe 60, 70 opportunities come. I know it sounds a little insane, but then we choose to do maybe four or five. But it's a balancing act. And there are times when I also say no for a whole month. So... Basically, you know, in December, I said no to everything. I have to balance power and time. It's not worth getting involved in a committee where you're going to spend a lot of time and you're not going to have power to change things because uh, you are going to spend precious time, which is time you would be investing in your research. And if you are discussing things that are going to have little effect and if you're not going to be able to make pressure, you have a lot to lose, basically. Another thing I would call your attention to is that physics in particular and STEM subjects in general, they are very competitive and they require immersion from you. So if you are doing diversity work, you're going to be asked to do the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, sometimes you are going to talk to deaf ears and what is going to happen is that your white male counterparts are going to publish another paper while you are spending your time doing this. So you already have the issue that the system as it is built doesn't favor you. And on top of that, you have a taxation which is associated with this uh, committee work. So you really have to ensure that the time and the effort that you're putting there is effective. Because otherwise, you're going to be sacrificing your whole scientific career at the altar of diversity. And you don't even know if something is going to happen. But on the other hand, you would like something to change because you have been at the receiving end. So you would like to change culture. You would like to change society. But you cannot become a martyr. And sometimes it's better to wait. For instance, uh, I supervise a lot of... Um, PhD students who are involved in this, or I have supervised, and I told them, wait a little bit, build your reputation as a scientist, and if you are an established scientist and you say something, whatever you say is going to have more weight.
I believe that um, being a black scientist um, can be challenging. And I recognize myself as a black scientist, but I also think of it as sometimes a burden. And so I'll start with the high note first. Um, And the reason that I want to start with the high note is because I, you know, am very proud of my black skin and I never want to change who I am because I know where I come from. I, I know my family history. I'm proud of coming from individuals that made livings that may not have known how to read and write like my grandfather, um, but were able to produce a PhD down the line, you know? Um, so I'm proud of my black skin. I'm proud of the struggles that we face and the things that I face now. Um, but I also think of it sometimes as a burden because sometimes in certain defined spaces in academe, you're the only one. Uh, and that has its own set of challenges because there's so many eyes. Um, you're like the rubric or the curriculum um, that everyone will go by um, in order to either acquire someone else or not. And so sometimes it may be a burden, um, but I take on that leadership responsibility so that there are other individuals that will be at the table like me to help make decisions for individuals that don't have an opportunity. I like to use my voice as a way to effectively communicate why scientists of color and especially black scientists should have an opportunity to excel um, and to be given the opportunity to critically think and evaluate problems from a different angle. And I think it's the most beautiful thing when you have scientists of all colors and all ideas working together um, for a, a, you know, a common cause, because the idea here is to rescue uh, or alleviate or treat um, or even cure um, a disease. That is the main object of why we're in academe. It shouldn't be based upon race politics or you know anything related to religious um, you know morals. I mean, I think everyone is entitled to everyone's beliefs. But I think it's just around asking the question, what does it take to answer the question? But we do have to have a sense of morality where we remember that everyone's different. And those experiences actually can allow for you to critically think from a different angle and allows for maybe more accelerated science to occur. I mean, look at Kazmika Corbett. You know, she's helped to develop a vaccine uh, that we're all taking, you know, you know, Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing when you have diversity at the table. Um, It's very powerful. Now that's all for this section of our Working Scientist podcast. We now have a slot sponsored by the International Science Council, which looks at why diversity is so critical to advancing science and the steps we can take to improve it. I'm David Payne, careers editor at Nature. Thanks for listening. I think that the... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A whole recording on race woke a lot of people up, helped people understand there's different rules for different people. That likely is the case in science, not just in the larger society. This series of podcasts has been an important start of a much-needed conversation for the International Science Council, one that will drive us towards action in addressing the persistent systemic issues of racism 
and of lack of diversity in science. At the beginning of the series, we said that it was time to step up to address these systemic issues. We said that transformation requires an openness to having difficult conversations and a healthy degree of critical self-reflection on the part of international organizations like ours. During the series, we have had to put this into practice as we navigated some critical issues that were raised by students, by early career scientists, and also by representatives of the ISC's own committees, such as our Committee for Freedom and Responsibility in Science. Combating systemic racism in science is a process that requires continual re-examination of what it means to be anti-racist, not only as an individual, but what taking an anti-racist stance means for individuals and also for science organizations that are working to uphold the right of everyone to participate freely in and to benefit from science. In broadcasting this series, the ISC wants to honor that continual re-examination and honor also the voices and the science of the interviewees who participated. Welcome to this podcast series from the International Science Council. That was Dyer Reddy, President of the ISC and Chair of the Council's Committee for Freedom and Responsibility in Science. I'm Marnie Chesterton, and in this final episode, we're focusing on addressing systemic racism in science and science systems. We'll be hearing from people who've spent their careers working to transform research institutions and from an early career scientist about her science and her call to action. The inclusion project has to be reinvented. And I do think we're in a historical moment where uh, science, science collaboration and higher education has to be completely reinvented. Systemic change happens with each of us as individuals in the way that we interact, communicate, think, the way we invite people, the rooms that we show up into. This isn't about just doing the right thing, even though it is about doing the right thing. It's also about doing things right, doing the science in a way that is open and responsive to many voices and many visions. This is Shirley Malcolm, Director of Sea Change at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, which is one of the ISC's partners working on combating systemic discrimination in science. I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and if I have been at AAAS for 40 years, you know that I am old. <laughs> and so for a black woman to go into science... Back in the 60s and 70s, that was highly unusual. I didn't see other black men or women in my classes or in my seminars or at professional meetings. Uh, we looked to try to undertake a lot of different intervention programs, but it wasn't the kind of impact that was needed in order to really make the science and engineering community truly representative of the larger society. The problem was not going to be addressed by trying to fix the individuals who were going into science or that we were trying to attract into science because there was nothing really wrong with the individuals. There were things that were wrong with the systems that we asked them to enter. This is how Sea Change, the AAAS initiative led by Shirley, was born. We needed to make huge adjustments, huge changes, huge transformations within colleges and universities 
so that they were welcoming of diverse populations as opposed to erecting barriers. I think one of the things that I find really disappointing is that many of the barriers that I faced when I started in uh, my education within the sciences, they're still there. And I hear this from many young people. They may be the only or one of a few uh, of the persons of color or women within their classes. They talk about being discouraged or maybe having people actively say something about whether or not they're in the right place. The fact that they can be confronted by campus police who wonder why they're in the building at night when they obviously got in there with the key that they have. In some places, in some institutions, it's better. But in other cases, they are confronting the same kinds of issues that have been there for decades. Here in the U.S., for example, women are 57% of participants in higher education. And if you add all women, including women of color, and uh, men of color to that, what you end up with is like about two-thirds of those who are in higher education. What does it mean to have intervention programs for the majority? What does it mean if most students are not being served by the existing structures? To me, it means that we've got to reimagine what those structures are going to be. This kind of reimagining calls for systemic change. To find out more about what kind of action can be effective, it's useful to look closely at some of the research systems and societies that have seen profound changes in the past three decades. If you're looking in the cycle between 1990 and 2020, I think that there is no higher education system that has undergone a more dramatic transformation uh, than the South African one. I lived through the transformation of these institutions in various guises, as a student, as an academic, as an administrator, and then as a vice-chancellor. That's Adam Habib, director of the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS, at the University of London. In this interview, Adam shares his experience at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and as vice-chancellor of the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. When I walked in, into the University of KwaZulu, uh, of Natal, in Peter Maritzburg in 1985, and then Wits University in 1987-88, uh, what you effectively had was 20%, 25% black students. In 2020, Wits University had about 80% black students. There has been a fundamental shift in the university system. And that's true of most universities in, in, in the country. And as we're thinking through the, the diversification of the scientific community, the non-racialization of the scientific community, I think learning the lessons of South Africa could be, have, it has positive lessons, but also negative lessons. This is not the result of clever vice chancellors or higher education executives. It is uh, uh, an outcome of pressures, both societal and institutional. Remember that our institutional transformations occurred in a context of societal transformation. The demise of apartheid, the emergence of a democratic South Africa. 
While Adam says that those early attempts were successful in terms of transforming the student community, the professorship, for example, remained largely white and male. So, a second generation of reforms was rolled out. What we did this time is we found that the following uh, individuals were scheduled to retire in the coming two to three years. And then what we did is we made an appointment against that uh, retirement. And so the appointment was more sustainable, if you like. The second thing that we were able to do is target academics in the system. Young academics who had been appointed in earlier years, uh, what had happened is they got all of the teaching loads, all of the administrative loads. And as a result, they never progressed up the hierarchy. And we were very cognizant that you couldn't simply promote them if they didn't meet the qualifications because that would weaken the academy. And so the question was how to create uh, the conditions, the life circumstances, so that they could develop their skill sets. They custom-made solutions for individual academics in order to develop their careers further, from funding for postgrad students to travel grants or additional support for childcare. Within two or three years, these people started applying for promotions and succeeding in their promotional applications. And so what you had is two sets of things. Firstly, a new generation of new academics emerging from diversified communities, but the second, helping those who are away in the system to achieve promotions. Other kinds of initiatives were directed at students, looking at scholarships targeting schools in marginalised communities. It also meant looking at things like the class rather than just the race of potential students. Because even though black students came in, these black students came in from the most privileged of circumstances. Many of them came from private schools. And so uh, there wasn't an equal playing field even within the disadvantaged racial communities. And so we brought in uh, really talented students from rural schools and from impoverished urban schools. The diversification wasn't done only on racial terms, but also in class terms, which I think uh, is something uh, that one needs to take into consideration. And so we need far more nuanced approaches to understanding and effecting diversification. For Adam, the process of diversification is continuously evolving. On June the 10th, 2020, many academics and scientists around the world stopped work for shutdown STEM in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. We speak to one of its co-founders. I am Dr. Brittany Kamai. I am an astrophysicist. I am based in Los Angeles, and I have a joint appointment between University of California, Santa Cruz and the California Institute of Technology. And I also am an instructor at the University of Hawaii on West Oahu. And so I work on uh, a field of research uh, called metamaterials to try to design new techniques that would improve our detectors. And the detectors that I work on are gravitational wave detectors that can give us new signals in the universe. If we want to build all these sensors and we ha- want to have a deep understanding, we need to work together. Understanding signals from the cosmos requires knowledge from a lot of different minds. On my path through astrophysics, what's given me a lens <laughs> is to see how we actually create the knowledge, right? It starts when we're in conversation with one another. You ask questions and you wonder about something and you, you read a bunch of things and you start writing. 
you start to see is the connection between the way that we think and what we say and what ends up into a, a research paper and then what ends up into a textbook. That imprint influences the way that anyone who reads that textbook thinks about the topic, right? And so I think that that is a powerful thing that we as scientists really need to take more ownership over um, in terms of really evaluating our own consciousness and how that's getting imprinted into what we write, what we say, and how that impacts society as a whole. The scientific community cannot ignore its impact on society as a whole, including when it comes to its record on diversity. I don't want to perpetuate an idea that diversity equals one subset of a group, right? We, when we say diversity, like we have to really evaluate what does diverse uh, representation look like and what different axes are going to be able to be in different spaces. And so when we talk about diversity, we really have to have a diverse conversation, right? Is that like if you bring in a person of color, then they should not have to talk and educate the entire group about what racism is. Systemic change starts with us, like talking to the people you're closely interacting with. And we have to hold space for the emotional work that goes into this kind of growth, right? To talk to a person of color and ask them, what is it like, you know, when your like race interacts with science? Like, that's a heavy question because oftentimes we'll run, we'll have to relive our traumatic experiences in front of someone who's not even equipped to hold that, right? So I think like that's where if you go to parties outside of the, the group that you're working with, listen to that group <laughs> and then slowly evolve it into your space. Really, like it is all of us and we have influence. And I think that what was powerful with Shutdown STEM is that we're like, it's a combination between like us as individuals and then your local environment while also being connected with the rest of the globe. From the small to the large scale, as we seek to make more diverse spaces in science, we need continuous evaluation of ourselves and our institutions. Each of us need to say, I am going to commit to learning about how to be an active ally to a specific group of people. And in order to be an active ally, you need to start by listening. <laughs> and so listening happens in many different forms. Like we are luckily in a space where we have so many people on social media who are sharing their stories. And so you can start to hear like what is happening and how people are being impacted. And then you can translate that into evaluating what is it that you're doing that could be something like that. We continuously define redefine what it means to be diverse. Those definitions of diversity and anti-racism and transformation and anti-discriminatory, uh, cosmopolitan, if you like. What it means to be cosmopolitan continuously changes over uh, generations as it should because it's a never-ending process of inclusion. That's what the university is. Uh, bring to the fore. That's what the scientific community should be about. It's about enabling a never-ending process of human inclusion. What gives me hope, what keeps me going, what keeps me in this business, this transformation business, is watching young people 
began to raise these same questions of where is everybody? Why aren't things equitable? What does it mean to be fair? Does science, in fact, have a race problem, a racism problem? And what can we do to remove it? Once we tear down the barriers to even asking these questions, we can't unsee the challenges. We need to then respond to them. Let's go back to Dyer Reddy, president of the International Science Council, to talk about the project launched in 2020 on combating systemic discrimination in science. The global science community needs to reckon with the stark reality of injustice. Silence and inaction simply sustain discriminatory practices. The project convenes many of the ISC's global partners to gather knowledge and to agree on concrete steps aimed at correcting systemic discrimination and racism in science. We've called upon all our members and a number of international partners to join us to take urgent action in various ways, uh, to gather and share knowledge on discrimination in science and to take concrete steps to correct discriminatory practices and to make science more inclusive. This will take action across a range of units and institutions from vice-chancellor's offices to research funding agencies, academies of science, international science organizations, publishers, research teams, right through to labs and individual researchers. At the International Science Council, our strength comes from the breadth and the diversity of our members of and networks. By working together, we are seeking to examine what really works to promote diversity in the science system and to implement the necessary change. This is not a one-off activity. There will not be a time, not in the near future anyway, at which we could say, well, the job is done. Change is hard and takes time, and it has to be pursued by each new generation of scientists. To find out more about the International Science Council, its members, partners and ongoing projects and resources related to the issues raised in this series, visit our website at council.science. As the global voice for science, the ISC invites you to join the ongoing conversation on diversifying science. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 